Support for this podcast comes from the Iowa Bankers Association. Across Iowa, hundreds of neighborhood banks are providing jobs, supporting businesses, and strengthening our communities. Here, the life you build is backed by Iowa Banks. See what we mean at iowabankers.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. What advances have we made in cancer research in the past quarter century? Just how far have we come in terms of knowing more about the causes of cancer, its prevention, diagnosis, and treatment? Advances in cancer, that's the focus of the hour today, as we listen back to a show from June of 2023 with Dr. George Weiner, Professor of Internal Medicine, Hematology, Oncology, Blood and Marrow Transplantation at the University of Iowa Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center. He directed that center at the University of Iowa from 1998 until March of 2023. That was shortly before we recorded this program. So let's go back to that conversation from June 5th of this year. Dr. Weiner, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here, Ben. Of course, a lot of this hour will be talking about the reason we have so many, thankfully, so many cancer survivors in our country uh, today. Before we get to the latest in research, uh, where we are compared to where we were decades ago, Dr. Weiner, you've stepped down as director of the Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Iowa, not retiring, though. Tell us a little bit about this decision and, and your pursuits now. Well, I had been doing the cancer center director job for a very long time, for 25 years. And I also had an active research laboratory and was involved at the national level in consulting with other cancer centers, et cetera. And it was clear to me that it was time for a change in the cancer center. Somebody who's been doing the job for 25 years is never really seen as a change agent. Mm -hmm. Plus, there were other things I wanted to do. So I felt it was best for the Cancer Center and its mission and best for myself if I turned the page to the next chapter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been enjoying it for the past month and a half or so. So what specifically are you most excited about in your next chapter? Well, I'm able to sit down and think about my research without the phone ringing or emails popping up on my screen continually about the day-to-day -day operations of the Cancer Center. So that's been great, great fun. And uh, I've also uh, been talking with my colleagues around the country about enhancing my ability to consult and provide advice uh, to other cancer centers and other organizations uh, around the country. Mm -hmm. um, before you take us back in time, or perhaps this is sort of to contextualize it, we'll need to go back in time right away. But how, in 2023, the current state of affairs, how would you describe where we are now in terms of cancer research and care? Well, that's a challenging question, obviously. Um, we've come a very, very long way, but we also have a very long way to go. Uh, one of the things that we've learned over the past quarter of a century is that cancer is much more complex than we ever imagined. It's not only the cells that are going haywire that cause the cancer, but how the body is responding to them. Mm. Uh, the idea of finding a single approach to prevent cancer or to treat cancer, that's just not going to happen. There's too much variability. Uh, but the more we invest in research, uh, the more we understand cancer, the more people we're going to be able to help. Mm -hmm. When we talk about, you know, 
former times there was the cure for cancer, you know, curing cancer. Some, And now you, you've pointed out many times in this program there are, are multiple cures for multiple cancers. Or there are, uh, I don't, is cure even the word? I don't know. Well, for some patients, cure is the word, mm-hmm. um, although we tend not to use it when talking to individual patients because we never know. But we know that we can cure some cancers. Mm-hmm. Uh, for others, we can control them well enough that people can live normal lives uh, for a very long time. So it's very individual. What was the milestone, the marker that led to understanding cancer in its more complex um, Uh, in its more complex faces? Well, I would say there were two things that have happened over the past 25 years, which are now being leveraged to help millions and millions of patients. And I'll start out by saying the traditional pillars of cancer therapy were chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. Mm -hmm. What we now have is two additional pillars that have emerged from these advances. One is called targeted therapy where we look at the DNA of the cancer itself, identify where it went haywire, and develop a treatment or an approach to prevention that goes directly at that abnormality. So as opposed to radiation and chemotherapy, which are very nonspecific, targeted therapy is very specific. So targeted that, therapy, is that also um, immunotherapy? Well, that's the, other, the second pillar. That's oh, okay, new. okay. So, mm-hmm. so we have targeted therapy, which specifically targets the cancer itself, Then another great advance, which has been my focus for over 30 years, is cancer immunotherapy. And this was a hard nut to crack. It took decades and decades of research before we really figured out how we can address how cancers hide from the immune system. I I sometimes would would talk about the uh, Harry Potter invisibility cloak, that the cancer figures out how to make itself invisible. Well, we're figuring out how to strip that cloak away so that the immune system can see the cancer and fight it off. And that's been, I think, one of the most spectacular advances. And we're still in the middle of that. We're still making advances in the laboratory. We're still learning how to apply those advances to patients. But millions of patients are benefiting from immunotherapy, whereas 20 years ago it was a pipe dream. So now it's it's a matter of what uh, finding better ways to turn on your own body to to attack cells, to recognize cells? What, what Where is the cutting edge right now in immunotherapy? Well, it's both turning your body on to attack the cancer, and I can talk about different approaches to doing that, but also, again, preventing the cancer from hiding. So for a lot of cancers, our body's immune system knows something's wrong but can't find it. Hmm. And we've been able to, uh, to strip that away. So suddenly the immune system can say, wait a minute, these cells don't belong. And uh, to be able to, uh, to, to fight them off. You've been listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I think it's Renita uh, in Cedar Rapids. I hope I got your name right. Right, uh, Renita, welcome to the program. Yes, you did. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, I was wondering, uh, I've heard a lot, uh, quite a bit lately about liver disease and liver cancers that are 
when they're discovered they're in the third or fourth stage, is, is there more liver disease, liver cancer happening um, as of late, or is it just something that's coincidence to me? Well, liver cancer worldwide is one of the most common cancers, and it's been less common in the United States. We are seeing an increase in incidence of liver cancer, and some of that is from folks who move here from other countries. A lot of liver cancer is actually secondary to viral infections or hepatitis of certain types that kind of churns away in the liver for years and years and years and causes some inflammation that secondarily can result in liver cancer. This is one of the types of cancer where we know we can prevent it. If people get the hepatitis B vaccine, if they have hepatitis C and we're able to treat that effectively, and alcohol is associated with an increased risk of liver cancer too. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those types of cancer where, yes, treatment is important, but we can probably have more of an impact if we prevent it than if we uh, uh, than than through novel treatments. Right, and, and you bring to mind other treatments like cervical cancer has also a vaccine. How many cancers have vaccines such as those? Well. The types of vaccines that are the most effective, at least right now, are those vaccines that prevent an infection that in the long term, a chronic, that chronic infection can lead to cancer. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the HPV vaccine is a classic example where we're doing better with the HPV vaccine, but still a huge number of people aren't getting the vaccine when they need it. The vaccine only works if you get it before you're exposed to the virus. And so, and it's most effective in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in children or, you know, young adults, uh, mm -hmm. junior high school, et cetera. So even though those, those uh, folks are not sexually active at that age, getting the vaccine then makes the most sense and has a, a great chance of reducing the risk of cervical cancer, of head and neck cancer, of other cancer types. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And our political conversation, our national conversation, misperceptions have not helped that in that particular case. They have not. Mm -hmm. Join us, 1-866-780-9100, uh, River to River at iowapublicradio.org. What other trends are we seeing in, in cancers? Um, we, uh, Renita just uh, you know talked about liver cancers. Are there some cancers that we're seeing come to the fore more, others receding because of whatever issues, lifestyle or others? Sure. Well, I think uh, a, a great partial success story is lung cancer, where we've seen a, a dramatic drop in the incidence of lung cancer over the past couple decades because of the anti-smoking and anti-tobacco uh, advocacy that's taken place over a very long period of time. Fewer Americans and few I fewer Iowans are smoking now, and we're seeing the subsequent drop in lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably the, the most notable. And lung cancer remains the most common cause of cancer death despite the improvements. Mm -hmm. Where else is a low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, preventing cancer? Another would be colorectal cancer, another very common cancer, where if we can catch it in the precancerous stage when there are polyps, uh, then, uh, then you're able to actually take out the polyp and prevent the cancer from occurring. Uh, so colonoscopy and other approaches to screening for colorectal cancer is another area where we've made progress, but not enough.
You're listening to my conversation with Dr. George Weiner, until recently head of the Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Iowa. And we'll be back with more of this Encore edition from earlier this year on the great strides made in understanding and fighting cancer. After a short break, it's River to River from IPR News. Support for this podcast comes from the Iowa Bankers Association. Across Iowa, hundreds of neighborhood banks are providing jobs, supporting businesses, and strengthening our communities. Here, the life you build is backed by Iowa banks. See what we mean at iowabankers.com. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, back with this encore edition of our program, recorded on June 5th of 2023. That's when my guest for the hour was Dr. George Weiner, professor of internal medicine, hematology, oncology, blood and marrow transplantation at the University of Iowa Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center. He directed the center for some 25 years, from 1998 until early in 2023, shortly before we recorded this program. At this point in the conversation, we took a call from a listener. Elizabeth joins us from Des Moines. Elizabeth, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi there. Go ahead, please. Okay, so um, my late husband passed away two years ago from GBM glioblastoma, um, brain cancer. Um, and I, it's very bittersweet when we hear about new um, treatments that have a real potential for that cure that everyone's looking for. Um, and lately I've heard something, just a snippet about a new gel that can be inserted into the area where a tumor is originally re- like um, resected from or removed from and how that's looking like it's going to be extremely promising. Is there anything, any other news besides um, that in the way of brain cancer specifically or? Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, thank you. We'll get a response to that. Our condolences for the loss of your husband. Thank you for calling. Uh, Indeed. And, And GBM has been one of those incredibly difficult, incredibly frustrating fields where, quite honestly, the progress has not kept up with the progress we've made in other cancer types. So brain, spinal cord cancers, you mean? Uh, mostly brain cancers, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not for lack of trying. Um, the The brain is a unique setting for the cells that grow there. And uh, we've just tried many different things in the laboratory and in clinical trials. And progress has been slower than we would like. I did mention both immunotherapy and targeted therapy, and both of those are now being explored with the understanding that the brain is just different than the rest of the body. So I'm cautiously optimistic that we will make progress. Um, sadly, it's, it's too slow for, 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 for folks who are, uh, 
who've already uh, you know suffered with these diseases. Yeah. But I think with continued research and investment, uh, we will make progress. And one of the areas that's being looked at is to implant uh, foams and other things within the tumor to both have an anti-tumor effect and maybe to attract the immune system in. So the immune system will not just fight the cancer right where, where the foam is, but learn how to attack it where it might be spreading elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Take us back to your very earliest days as a cancer researcher in the 1980s. And um, before the break, I want to ask you to wow us because it's so so easy to lose track of the progress, mm-hmm. uh, the incremental progress that has been made in cancer research, treatment, diagnosis. Uh, give us an image or an idea of what you think about uh, that makes you realize we have come a long way. Well, I, I when I was cleaning up my office before I moved uh, to my new office, I found my old, what I used to call my recipe book, which had the list of the different chemotherapy regimens that we would use to treat patients when I first started. It would have been in the 80s. It would have been in the 80s. It was handwritten. It was scotch taped together. <laughs> it had about 30 pages. And most of those treatments were not terribly effective. When I look now at our ability to analyze a cancer, determine what type of cancer it is at the molecular level, think about where the patient is and their life's journey, and that's also very important, and tailor a treatment specifically for that patient, working in a multidisciplinary setting with multiple experts working together, it, it, it's a different world than it was when I first started. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to our phones, one 780 9100 Steve in Cedar Rapids, you're on the air with Dr. George Wiener. Welcome. Hello. Um, I, was, um, I went through chemo last year. Um, I um, had hairy cell leukemia, and um, uh, you know, I was treated with pentostatin. And then after that, I also had about, you know, I had about a dozen... Uh, tumors removed, you know, basal cell and um, squamous. And though my numbers look okay, my energy levels just really haven't come back. I was just wondering, is that typical or, you know, how long does it take? Thank you. We wish you the best to Steve. Thanks for sharing your story. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to, to provide, uh, specific information on on your energy level coming back without knowing the whole medical story. Um, what I can say is, is actually pentastatin and treatment of what was known as hairy cell leukemia was one of the first targeted treatments before we even knew that's what it was. It's a drug that went directly to the abnormality in these leukemia cells and and blocked it. And it was one of the forebearers of the treatments we're now doing well. And one of the areas where we said, if we can figure out what's going haywire with these cancers, maybe we can treat them more effectively. Mm-hmm. So pentastatin has been around for a long time for treatment of hairy cell leukemia, uh, but it, it's a very effective drug. Mm-hmm. What, uh, mentioning chemotherapy, what steps have been made to make chemotherapy treatment uh, easier on patients? Well, you know, uh, we're, we're starting to understand why some patients um, have a more difficult time with chemotherapy than others. Some of it has to do with metabolism of the chemotherapy medicine. So we're just entering an era of what we call pharmacogenomics, where we can actually adjust the dose 
of the chemotherapy drug ahead of time to try to make sure we get the right dose for the right patient, as opposed to the standard approach where we would give the first dose, and if the patient got really sick, we'd give them less the next time. Mm. So we're working to tailor chemotherapy for the patient. My hope is that chemotherapy 20 years from now will be of historic interest only, really? with a few exceptions, mm -hmm. and that we really will be in the area of targeted therapy and immunotherapy, uh, which uh, are better tolerated and have fewer side effects. Distinguish between immunotherapy, you, you, that's your area of the expertise, but targeted therapy, how does it distinguish from immunotherapy? So targeted therapy is usually in the form of drugs, some of them that are, are given by pill form, that are specifically designed to turn off what's wrong in the cancer cell. And so the cancer cell will either die or it will start behaving like a normal cell when it's exposed to these drugs. Mm -hmm. um, immunotherapy is designed to help the immune system see the cancer and fight it off. So there's overlap between the two, but targeted therapy is more going directly at the problem, and immunotherapy is helping your body fight the problem. Got it. one 780 River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Patrick is joining us. Uh, welcome to the program, Patrick. Hi. Uh, I appreciate this program. Um, I live in Omaha, Nebraska, but I listen to River to River regularly. Oh, wonderful. Um, my, my question is this. I am a, um, uh, for five years, uh, actually six years ago, I was diagnosed with melanoma, uh, I, I have been through um, an uh, NIH drug trial, um, immunotherapy, uh, ipilimumab and nivolumab, and had good success with that. Um, recently, however, I've uh, been um, also diagnosed with um, colorectal cancer. Um, I'm, I'm curious about whether I, uh, DNA markers, I don't know a lot about that, but I'm wondering whether I should... Um, say something to my children about uh, some kind of um, DNA testing to see whether they might have markers for the kinds of cancers that I've had? Mm, good question, Patrick. That's a very good question. And, and first of all, you know, we, we talked about uh, uh, GBM cancer as one of the cancers where we've made little progress. Melanoma is the opposite. We've made incredible progress in melanoma, both with immunotherapy and targeted therapy. And so those are sort of the, the poster children for what's gone well and what hasn't in the field of, of cancer. What I would suggest is, is talk to a genetics counselor uh, about, uh, about uh, getting counseling first and then deciding whether or not you, you might want to be tested. Um, colorectal cancer, there can be some syndromes that run in families. My family has a strong history of colorectal cancer. And we've been tested. We don't have any of the genes that, mm -hmm. that might make it more likely. But I would suggest talking to a genetic counselor about, uh, about uh, whether or not your story uh, increases or changes the risk of them getting uh, cancer or not. Mm -hmm. Patrick, we wish you well. Thank you for calling in and tuning in regularly uh, from Omaha. Take care. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, talk a little bit more about DNA and uh, genetic sequencing, how that has gone hand-in-hand hand with the tremendous progress that we've seen. How has that allowed us to understand the complexity of cancer? Well, it's, it's made all the difference. And I'd like to distinguish two different types of DNA testing that we do. Mm -hmm. One that we were, were just talking about is testing 
your DNA in your body to see what your risks of getting cancer is. A second type of testing is on the cancer itself because we know what happens in a cancer is that sometimes that DNA will break and uh, get a mutation in it and that will drive the cell to become a cancer cell. So we look at DNA that's present in our bodies in general to look at risk of cancer, mm -hmm. but we also look at DNA in the cancer to try to pick out the best treatment for that individual patient. Mm -hmm. um, listeners may remember the Human Genome Project that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to sequence that first genome. Well, we knew, now do that not only regularly for our patients, but we can actually do it on almost a single cell from a cancer. And the advances made possible by research and by federal investment in research has really allowed for this revolution to take place in our understanding of cancer and our ability to find the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. Mm -hmm. And I would say we're only about 30% of the way there. We've made great progress, but we still have a long way to go. When you look at the present funding investment in current cancer research and into the future, do you have worries there that we're going to sustain and hopefully increase the amount of research? Because the sense that I'm getting in from you is that the investments that were made a decade or two or three ago, we are, we are reaping the benefits in a big way now. Oh, we certainly are. Um, I think we'll continue to make progress, but the speed of that progress is going to be proportional to the investment that we make. Right now, only about one in 10 cancer grants written by great researchers at our cancer center and sent to the National Cancer Institute are funded. There are many great ideas that go unexplored because there just isn't the funding to, to explore them. Many states have cancer research programs. Uh, Texas, North Carolina have very large programs. I think it'd be spectacular if Iowa also supported cancer research taking place not just at Holden, but at some of the, the great uh, hospitals across the state uh, to really help us speed up progress uh, and, and to help more patients right here at home. Mm -hmm. What do you think is standing in the way of more funding? I think it gets caught up in uh, general political discussion. Uh, hopefully, one of the things I'm going to be able to do with my newfound free time is advocate for the importance of cancer research funding and how it will impact on, on the future of us all. Mm -hmm. If you've just joined us, Dr. George Weiner, former director of the University of Iowa Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center, uh, director of that center even before it had the name Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center. Is that right, doctor? That's right. Okay, uh, 1998. We, yes. So, so walk us through uh, the achievements of the center uh, when, as, as you, during your time as director, if you could quickly, before we go back to other callers. Well, I think that the two major accomplishments that, that we were able to make early on uh, soon after I became uh, the, the director of the center, was number one, we were able to get designation from the National Cancer Institute as in what's called an NCI-designated cancer center. And we actually got what's called comprehensive designation at the same time, which they don't allow anymore. Uh, they, they require that you do it in two separate steps. So that put us uh, on, on, uh, on the playing field with the, with the major leagues, with the other cancer centers around the country. Mm -hmm. And then the second was the wonderful support from the Holden family and from Williamsburg, Iowa, 
who gave us a gift that really was transformational and allowed us to invest in programs uh, that have continued to thrive to this day. Mm -hmm. What is collaboration like between cancer centers around the U.S. in in this uh, level um, uh, of cancer center? That also has changed for for the better. Um, We collaborate extensively with many other cancer centers around the country. We're part of the Big Ten Cancer Research Consortium, which is all of the Big Ten institutions working together to do mostly clinical trials so we can get answers for our patients more quickly. And we're part of the Oncology Research Information Exchange Network, or Orion, which is 19 cancer centers that combine molecular information to allow our researchers to work more quickly. We serve on each other's advisory boards. Uh, We exchange information. Uh, It really is a wonderful community. Uh, And we work very closely together because we recognize that we're, again, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. The cancer moonshot is something that we talked about many years ago and also more recently. Uh, President Biden, of course, uh, connected with that. Remind us, what is the cancer moonshot? Is it still active? The moonshot is still active. It's another way to think about cancer research. Um, On one hand, we want the researchers' ideas to bubble up when they have a great idea, even if it's a high-risk, high-payoff idea. It's great to support those because that's where a lot of advances come from. There's also a need for those big ideas from more more from a top-down approach where you identify a problem and bring people together around that problem. So we need to support both. We need to support investigator-initiated research, and we need to support larger programmatic research ideas uh, that are represented by the moonshot. Mm-hmm. When we look uh, quickly at uh, the patients, um, you mentioned that's important. How has that evolved, uh, treating patients differently, the mindset of the patient, the attitude of the patient? Well, I think that has become much more sophisticated. Uh, We now think much more about prevention, and we also think about disparities, the fact that there are communities in Iowa and elsewhere that carry an undue rate of burden of cancer for a variety of reasons. In fact, there are common disparities between underserved populations in the inner city, very often ethnic minorities, and rural underserved in our most rural communities. There are a lot of commonalities there. And one of the things I think Iowa has a great opportunity to do is to bring those communities together and figure out how they can learn from each other and how we can reduce those disparities, both for those people in small town Iowa and those who are in our larger cities. Now, in just a moment, the remainder of my conversation with Dr. George Wiener from a show recorded in June of 2023. That was shortly after Dr. Wiener retired from directing the University of Iowa Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center. He led the center for 25 years. I'm Ben Kiefer, back in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. 
It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. What advances have we made in cancer research in the past quarter century? Just how far have we come in terms of knowing more about the causes of cancer, its prevention, diagnosis, and treatment? Advances in cancer, that's the focus of the hour today, as we listen back to a show from June of 2023 with Dr. George Weiner, Professor of Internal Medicine, Hematology, Oncology, Blood and Marrow Transplantation at the University of Iowa Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center. He directed that center at the University of Iowa from 1998 until March of 2023. That was shortly before we recorded this program. So let's go back to that conversation from June 5th of this year. Dr. Weiner, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here, Ben. Of course, a lot of this hour will be talking about the reason we have so many, thankfully, so many cancer survivors in our country uh, today. Before we get to the latest in research, uh, where we are compared to where we were decades ago, Dr. Weiner, you've stepped down as director of the Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Iowa, not retiring, though. Tell us a little bit about this decision and, and your pursuits now. Well, I had been doing the cancer center director job for a very long time, for 25 years. And I also had an active research laboratory and was involved at the national level in consulting with other cancer centers, et cetera. And it was clear to me that it was time for a change in the cancer center. Somebody who's been doing the job for 25 years is never really seen as a change agent. Mm -hmm. Plus, there were other things I wanted to do. So I felt it was best for the cancer center and its mission and best for myself if I turned the page to the next chapter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been enjoying it for the past month and a half or so. So what specifically are you most excited about in your next chapter? Well, I'm able to sit down and think about my research without the phone ringing or emails popping up on my screen continually about the day-to-day -day operations of the cancer center. So that's been great, great fun. And uh, I've also uh, been talking with my colleagues around the country about enhancing my ability to consult and provide advice uh, to other cancer centers and other organizations uh, around the country. Mm -hmm. um, before you take us back in time, or perhaps this is sort of to contextualize it, we'll need to go back in time right away. But how, in 2023, the current state of affairs, how would you describe where we are now in terms of cancer research and care? Well, that's a challenging question, obviously. Um, we've come a very, very long way, but we also have a very long way to go. Uh, one of the things that we've learned over the past quarter of a century is that cancer is much more complex than we ever imagined. It's not only the cells that are going haywire that cause the cancer, but how the body is responding to them. Mm. Uh, the idea of finding a single approach to prevent cancer or to treat cancer, that's just not going to happen. There's too much variability. Uh, but the more we invest in research, uh, the more we understand cancer, the more people we're going to be able to help. Mm -hmm. When we talk about, you know, former times there was the cure for cancer, you know, curing cancer. Some, And now you, you've pointed out many times in this program there are, are multiple cures for multiple cancers, or there are, uh, I don't, is cure even the word? I don't know. 
Well, for some patients, cure is the word, mm-hmm. um, although we tend not to use it when talking to individual patients because we never know. But we know that we can cure some cancers. Mm-hmm. Uh, for others, we can control them well enough that people can live normal lives uh, for a very long time. So it's very individual. What was the milestone, the marker that led to understanding cancer in its more complex um, Uh, in its more complex faces? Well, I would say there were two things that have happened over the past 25 years, which are now being leveraged to help millions and millions of patients. And I'll start out by saying the traditional pillars of cancer therapy were chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. Mm -hmm. What we now have is two additional pillars that have emerged from these advances. One is called targeted therapy where we look at the DNA of the cancer itself, identify where it went haywire, and develop a treatment or an approach to prevention that goes directly at that abnormality. So as opposed to radiation and chemotherapy, which are very nonspecific, targeted therapy is very specific. Targeted therapy, is that also uh, immunotherapy? Well, that's the the second pillar. Oh, okay, okay. So, mm -hmm. So we have targeted therapy, which specifically targets the cancer itself, Then another great advance, which has been my focus for over 30 years, is cancer immunotherapy. And this was a hard nut to crack. It took decades and decades of research before we really figured out how we can address how cancers hide from the immune system. I I sometimes would would talk about the uh, Harry Potter invisibility cloak, that the cancer figures out how to make itself invisible. Well, we're figuring out how to strip that cloak away so that the immune system can see the cancer and fight it off. And that's been, I think, one of the most spectacular advances. And we're still in the middle of that. We're still making advances in the laboratory. We're still learning how to apply those advances to patients. But millions of patients are benefiting from immunotherapy, whereas 20 years ago, it was a pipe dream. So now it's it's a matter of what, uh, finding better ways to turn on your own body to to attack cells, to recognize cells? What, what Where is the cutting edge right now in immunotherapy? Well, it's both turning your body on to attack the cancer, and I can talk about different approaches to doing that, but also, again, preventing the cancer from hiding. So for a lot of cancers, our body's immune system knows something's wrong but can't find it. And we've been able to uh, to strip that away. So suddenly the immune system can say, wait a minute, these cells don't belong. And to, to be able to, uh, to, to fight them off. You've been listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I think it's Renita uh, in Cedar Rapids. I hope I got your name right. Right, uh, Renita, welcome to the program. Yes, you did. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, I was wondering, uh, I've heard a lot, uh, quite a bit lately about liver disease and liver cancers that are when they're discovered, they're in the third or fourth stage. Is is there more liver disease, liver cancer happening um, as of late, or is it just something that's coincidence to me? 
Well, liver cancer worldwide is one of the most common cancers, and it's been less common in the United States. We are seeing an increase in incidence of liver cancer, and some of that is from folks who move here from other countries. A lot of liver cancer is actually secondary to viral infections or hepatitis of certain types that kind of churns away in the liver for years and years and years and causes some inflammation that secondarily can result in liver cancer. This is one of the types of cancer where we know we can prevent it. If people get the hepatitis B vaccine, if they have hepatitis C and we're able to treat that effectively, and alcohol is associated with an increased risk of liver cancer too. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those types of cancer where, yes, treatment is important, but we can probably have more of an impact if we prevent it than if we uh, uh, than than through novel treatments. Right, and, and you bring to mind other treatments like cervical cancer has also a vaccine. How many cancers have vaccines such as those? Well. The types of vaccines that are the most effective, at least right now, are those vaccines that prevent an infection that in the long term, a chronic, that chronic infection can lead to cancer. Mm. And the, the, the HPV vaccine is a classic example where we're doing better with the HPV vaccine, but still a huge number of people aren't getting the vaccine when they need it. The vaccine only works if you get it before you're exposed to the virus. And so, and it's most effective in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in children or, you know, young adults, mm -hmm. uh, junior high school, et cetera. So even though those, those uh, folks are not sexually active at that age, getting the vaccine then makes the most sense and has a, a great chance of reducing the risk of cervical cancer, of head and neck cancer, of other cancer types. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And our political conversation, our national conversation, misperceptions have not helped that in that particular case. They have not. Mm -hmm. Join us, 1-866-780-9100, uh, River to River at iowapublicradio.org. What other trends are we seeing in, in cancers? Um, we, uh, Renita just uh, you know talked about liver cancers. Are there some cancers that we're seeing come to the fore more, others receding because of whatever issues, lifestyle or others? Sure. Well, I think uh, a, a great partial success story is lung cancer, where we've seen a, a dramatic drop in the incidence of lung cancer over the past couple decades because of the anti-smoking and anti-tobacco uh, advocacy that's taken place over a very long period of time. Fewer Americans and few I fewer Iowans are smoking now, and we're seeing the subsequent drop in lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably the, the most notable one. Lung cancer remains the most common cause of cancer death despite the improvements. Mm -hmm. Where else is a low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, preventing cancer? Another would be colorectal cancer, another very common cancer, where if we can catch it in the precancerous stage when there are polyps, uh, then uh, then you're able to actually take out the polyp and prevent the cancer from occurring. Uh, so colonoscopy and other approaches to screening for colorectal cancer is another area where we've made progress, but not enough.
listening to my conversation with Dr. George Weiner, until recently head of the Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Iowa. And we'll be back with more of this Encore edition from earlier this year on the great strides made in understanding and fighting cancer. After a short break, it's River to River from IPR News. Thank you.